0: So I just led a short meditation there. If you're used to sitting half an hour, as a long meditation. You just take that, that very idea that it was a short meditation, it was a long meditation. That's a perception, isn't it? So if a meditation was peaceful, comfortable, calm, then it might have been, the feeling might be a short meditation. If it was painful, hot, and you had some nasty thoughts coming up, the perception would be that it's a, maybe a long meditation. So the perception arises and ceases, and the pre- perception is dependent on the quality of the experience. It's the nature of things. And, and we as humans, we are both, strangely enough, we're both kind of actors in a movie and witnesses of the movie. It's odd, isn't it? I can notice myself getting upset by something, and I can get really upset by something. Both are happening, and as actors in the world, we need to act. We need to relate to people. We have responsibilities. We need to make sure that you pay your mortgage and food in the fridge and all the rest of it. But there is there is that in in life which we we think think of as spiritual or something about life which isn't just the ordinary humdum survival and doings of life. And I think that's why we're here. We have some sense of spirituality, religion, otherness, different ways. We we think about that or talk about that. So this meditation is kind of very simply just trying to point to a, a type of perception which we usually don't employ. The perception that the events that took place are in awareness. And that's not a kind of absolute philosophy. If you take these ideas are sort of intellectual absolutes, and you can argue with yourself: Is that true or not? Is that absolutely true? Whereas a perception is it just a way, a perspective, a way of looking at things? So, if the if the meditation was uh, had a feeling of being long, what's that like? Well, I have maybe pain in my body and my practice is usually half an hour, we're sitting for 45 minutes. <clears throat> then I kind of look at the clock or shift my posture, and I think maybe I should get up. So a world is created from the perception this is a long meditation. And that world can be known. You can, you can be aware of that happening, can't you? If you have that perspective, this is in awareness. So you're not dismissing the, the movement of these what we call worldly dharmas, but you are finding a perspective which isn't dependent on them. And notice that awareness is not dependent on the feelings of pleasure or pain. Awareness knows pleasure and pain. That's why it's a, a liberating quality or a, liberate, or a liberating perspective on life. And so, in as you're as you're meditating, you of course maybe pick up on that idea a little bit, but then you find you're falling asleep, right? So the perspective of the witness or awareness of change gets lost in the conditions, in the phenomena that are arising in consciousness. And the and the, and the challenge then is to sustain that open-hearted awareness, that open-minded awareness. And that's, I think most of us, it's not so easy. It's not so really, really easy, because we either Like, say, dullness and sleepiness is a a very common uh, hindrance to that meditative life and and that sense of perspective. So the task of the meditator there is, can I notice dullness as an object rather than become dulled by whatever energies are there? And that's the challenge of effort. The effort in meditation is the effort to sustain this open perspective perspective of things arising and ceasing so what we emphasize in Buddhist practice is the changing nature of conditions rather than the quality of the conditions the changing nature of phenomena rather than the pleasurable displeasurable quality of phenomena our desire minds focus more on the pleasure or displeasure we like it we don't like it and that's necessary you know if I feel if you feel discomfort and you're uh, and your, your your knees are really hurting, you need to know that. You need to know that that displeasure is important so that you move, so that you don't hurt yourself. So pleasure and pain are natural. But pleasure and pain are not liberating qualities. They're natural qualities, but they don't really liberate you. They, they satiate you for a little bit, and we need to listen to them because they're natural phenomena. But what's really liberating is a more kind of transcendent attitude to... Our human experience and that transcendent attitude in Buddhism comes from the perception of change that I can if I can let's say uh, I meant like for me around this time of day no matter how much coffee I've drunk um, I always feel dull And, and it's something about my my bodily rhythms and it's not Incapacity, because I understand it and I know how to see it as an object. I know how to vitalize my body. I know how to not become too refined and subtle in my meditation. I know what I need to focus on and I need to focus on my posture and my neck and so on. So I've had enough experience around uh, dullness and sleepiness that I can pretty much now, unless I'm really, really exhausted, I can see it as an object. So. So to be able to see the hindrance of dullness as an object is a liberating uh, perspective, isn't it? I'm no longer lost or enslaved to it. But that took some work. And, and I remember um, I was a young monk and rather proud, and I thought I had a good meditation. And another monk said to me, You're dumb with your heads on the floor. And I said, No, I'm not. I'm a good meditator. Right, and then I got suspicious. So I wasn't even noticing it. You know, I was like down here. And that was a good meditation. So then I went, I went to visit mom in Toronto. Oh, we're in Toronto, aren't we? <laughs> um, and uh, I set myself up in, in front of a full length, mom and dad didn't see this, of course. So when they weren't around, I set myself up in meditations in front of a full-length mirror. And I had a clock, and I usually sat for an hour or more, but I just set it for 15 minutes. And I made a determination that when the buzzer rang, I would open my eyes, I wouldn't move my body. So I'm sitting there, and I opened my eyes, and I was down here, and I didn't know it. I was not aware of my body. I was was shocked. I was really like, God, what are you doing, man? And that gave me a kind of vitality. So, you know, what are you doing in your meditation? You're just zonking out in some kind of way. And then I put more vitality in. And then then I had, unfortunately, I had developed a kind of bad habit of basically just hunkering down for an hour. I just kind of being lost. All the weight was here. So then I had to put more vitality. I tried drinking a lot of coffee. I said, come on, that's cheating. I mean, you've got to do this right. So... So then I, I you know, developed more uh, body awareness, more awareness around posture, uh, awareness on the head going down, the thought patterns, the porridge kind of thought patterns that come up into my mind, the weight of the body going onto the forearms and so on and so forth. So it was an education, an education around the nature of that object of consciousness in which I could not be aware, in which a sense of this is something in awareness was lost as I was in the porridge. I was in the dullness, and, the, and my, my struggles with that in, at first were very willful, I was just willfully trying to conquer uh, sleepiness, so I'd, I would do you know fiercely conquering kind of things, and that would work for a while, and then I'd fall asleep again, and I saw well, that's not, that's not really wise, it's just willful, so I had to investigate. And I had to get I had to get myself back up in the ball. So I do I would do walking meditation too. And I said no, I want to learn about this, and it was it was a struggle. Many many monks or laypeople, whoever, if you meditate, that's a real struggle, isn't it? But that struggle, what it does, it develops qualities of of of, um, of presence and, and and qualities of mind, which then become a foundation for enlightenment, a foundation for abiding. Uh, in that kind of transcendent peace, which we are, which is a possibility for us humans. Uh, so, so in in the development of meditation, it's not simply the quality of the of the experience that's important. It's not just simply I had a good meditation or a bad meditation. That's a that's probably not a really good way to go about it to to uh, evaluate a meditation experience. Certainly, some meditations are very, very uh, pleasant, and some unpleasant. But probably, what's more valuable is could I sustain awareness through the unpleasantness? Now, that's that's truly valuable because that's building a foundation of presence, of patience, of of clarity, of intelligence, which doesn't get fooled by the conditions of mind, and that's unassailable. But a meditation which happens to be circumstantially nice, everything comes together, certainly pleasant, but all of us who have done meditation, we all know how when you try to manufacture that and repeat that, you just get frustrated because it's coming from desire, from your desire to get something in the past. So what's important for me is, is the, this perspective that's happening in awareness, and then the effort is, what, what do I need to do now to sustain that? And so each meditation is different. Each situation is different. But, but, there is a body of wisdom there, which is the skill of the craft of meditation, which is built up over time. But that skill is not something which is just experiential. It's deeper. It's like a like a cabinet maker who's just worked with a lot of wood, knows how to use a router, knows how to make joints or whatever, the, 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 the cabinet maker's wisdom is in the hands, in the intuitive sense of what's going on, in the experience of having done something. In and, and the same way, meditation is a craft. It's something that very few people that I, of, the, of the monastics I know and so on, very few people are natural adept. Some are, some definitely are, they just naturally have a, have a lot of as we say, good karma will borrow me to naturally fall into uh, a mind which is very tranquil and still. But most, most people, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult uh, discipline, it's a difficult craft. And if you, I find if I look at it that way, as a craft, and I get something then in my, in my human existential experience which blows me away, which confuses me, where, where the, the capacity to be awake to change gets uh, lost in some ways, okay, that's where my education has to be. That's the only way it could be, isn't it? That's where I have to learn. And always the things which overwhelm you the most are the things which edify you the most. If things are socially overwhelming and they're just um, harmful, then of course we try to get out of there because it's just too painful or too difficult. But those areas of the mind where our buttons get pressed and such like, where... We cannot sustain that sense of this is just an object. This is something that has arisen, is, is, is staying and goes away. When we can't sustain that, that's where we need to really put a lot of intention into, to see why? why? Why do I get so confused by this social situation? What is it about my mind that carries, I was saying like yesterday, those, those discussions we have or arguments or disagreements with people that bounce around in our minds for days, you know, what's that about? What's that about? Those are things that we need to, to learn about. Not as you know, not, not as a self-judgment. See, that's where awareness is not strong. So the evaluation that I try to make is... is I mean, I'm probably like you. I'm, I'm very good at self-hatred. Very good. I'm very... Self-disparagement. I've, I know how to do that very well. But you, you, you and I know that's not productive because it's not imbued with love or kindness. It's imbued with self-judgment. So... Uh, I see that in myself, say. So. I see that as a strong habit. And so, okay. If I say to myself, I shouldn't be self judgmental, what am I saying? I'm being judgmental of self judgmental. Doesn't work, does it? Right? Because why? I'm no longer the witness, I'm still the actor. Huh? It's the same as if I have, if I have a meditation where uh, I feel uh, a discomfort. And, and it feels like a long meditation. When I can be aware of that feeling that this is a long meditation, as an object, I'm free of it. Still there, but now I've got the perspective of witness, aware of change. When I'm in it, and I'm not aware of that, clock, it's a long meditation, should I move, should I not move? There isn't a the distance, there isn't the space. Huh? Same with more, more deeply embedded, kinds of things that our attention gets kidnapped by and caught up into and so on, those more deeply embedded things, they take a lot of work. They take a lot of uh, of forbearance and and, uh, patience to constantly make conscious. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make fully conscious the way things are. And then see, what is it about this particular mood of the mind or this situation in which the awareness of change cannot be sustained? That's a challenge. So, something like uh, self-criticism or self-hatred, I, I see that still very strong in me because it's such a strong habit. And I don't know, I, you know, I speculate very little about it, where it came from, it doesn't really matter, there it is. So I have to be very careful because that sense of, of self-criticism, when it comes up, is a strong sense of self. It seems very true, but all it is is an opinion. It's just a thought. It's just a thought. Now, if someone says to me, you know, you're, you know, you're really sloppy, Viradhamma, or whatever, I can take that on board and I can say, yeah, that's helpful feedback or not. It's not, not saying that one doesn't self-correct in some way, but these kind of insidious self-perceptions, um, self-definitions that we all have, we're trying to see those as objects. Because any self-perception that I have is an object of mine. If I think I'm great or I'm lousy, It's still only a thought in the mind. That's all it is. It just is as it is. Uh, And to actually notice that, a habit of mind, a strong habit of, of like maybe someone suffering from, like uh, one person I was talking to recently, they have a lot of sense of shame. Uh, Another person is just always fantasizing movies. Another person is uh, always into projects. Another person is into regretting something that happened 10 years ago. These are all objects of mind, they're just conditions that come and go. They're natural, there's nothing right or wrong about them. And some of them we have to address, but a lot of them are just noise, that's all they are, or old gas, <laughs> you know, burping up into consciousness. And unpleasant oftentimes, but that's all it is, that's all it is. And to, and to see that, that the liberation of the heart lies both in good living, Living well, living morally, living generously, living in a responsible way in our families and in our cultures. That's a big part of it, the way we live our lives, but also realizing there is that transcendent possibility. Awareness is transcendent, you know, and, and that's what I was trying to, to indicate, that, that you listen to sound, you feel your body, you toggle between those two and you feel that like, well, aware. awareness is always there. It's not sound, sound gets really uh, cacophonic, or it's really ethereal. Awareness doesn't get ethereal or cacophonic. Awareness has no color, no, you know, it has no, no taste. Um, you, you feel the body, the body feels pleasure, the body feels pain, you feel comfortable, you feel uncomfortable. The bo- awareness doesn't feel comfortable or uncomfortable, it knows, it knows, it knows. And, then, and the perspective of liberation in, in Buddhism, is the, the perception of change. And that's a certain kind of focus which is not dependent on the object being a certain way. It's dependent on remembering a perspective. And that's what we're trying to do. You know, in Buddhism we're always talking about change, aren't we? In the in Nepali, um, it's impermanent, and so on and so forth. And that, that's a commonplace piece of information that we, you know, you don't have to be enlightened to know that. You know it'll get dark tonight. Did the Buddha know that it's going to get dark tonight? So it's obviously not so silly. There must be something more profound about the Buddha's emphasis on change. And the emphasis on change was a way of, for me, the way I try to use that teaching isn't just a kind of buddhist artifact of cultural belief. I believe in Buddhism, so what do I believe in? I believe in change, not self and, and suffering. Thank you very much. Right? But that's useless actually. It's just another buddhist position that you take. It doesn't mean that I don't believe, I believe in the opposite, no. But taking a teaching and enlivening it by actually perceiving the world through these suggestions that the Buddha makes to us is a different activity. It's the activity of remembering and engaging in life through a teaching. A teaching when it's just left as a bunch of intellectual principles which are appealing and which are believed in, does not liberate. It makes for good discussion sometimes, or bad discussion. It doesn't really liberate. What really liberates... Like if I watch... I've been doing some woodwork and I'm watching a, a YouTube on finger joints and trying to make a finger joint jig, or for the table saw with dado blades, it's all new for me. And I hope I don't lose my thumbs. But, you know, I watch the YouTube thing, that guy's really, he's got it done. I get in there, I don't get it done. I don't, the measurements aren't really accurate, and I get sloppy, and all the rest of it. So even though I've got the information, actually the doing, it's not so easy. It's not so clear. And that, that's what a teaching is about, isn't it? You know, the teaching is, is a suggestion. It's a reflection. Buddhism, I think it only works if you see it as a reflection. If you see it as kind of absolute positions, people then just argue, you know, argue about a word. Big deal. It's just a word. Yeah, but it's, it's a word. Whereas using a word and language to, to see, well, why did the Buddhist say that? Why did he emphasize that? And how does it apply to my present situation of being frightened and angry and, and suffering? What, what is it? Or, or how does it apply to my aspiration for transcendence and freedom? What, what is it about that? So, the perception of change, then, again, it's not a cultural artifact that we just kind of. Buddhists are always doing that. You know, someone dies, yes, yes, it's all changing. Well, I know. <laughs> but. But what the the perception of change is bringing us to is that which is unchanging. And that's what's important. That's what's important. It's not just that everything is changing and there's nothing else. Because if there was nothing else, then I think, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Do the best you can. But because there is something else, because there is the transcendent, because there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed, nibbana. There is the island. There is peace. There is the deathless. All this language that we have in Theravada Buddhism, the perception of change becomes very important, because through the perception of change, you take, you almost take it like a posture and attitude, which actually opens you to the transcendent. That's what it's doing, because our our constant focus on that which is changing on the objects of sense and consciousness and experience and the material goods of the world. We need to function in there, so we need to focus. But if that's our only focus, then we're preoccupied with the conditioned realm and we can never realize the unconditioned. We, we disqualify ourselves because we're preoccupied with birth and death, with the changing. But if we take this other perspective, which the, the, the Buddha is suggesting, that... Uh, Try this one out. You know, when you're feeling really fearful, look at look at fear as something that is an object that's changing in consciousness. Try that out. Now you have to try it. You have to say, oh yeah, fear is changing. Yeah, but it's not changing fast enough. <laughs> that's not the teaching. And so to say be with something like fear and notice it and still and still do due diligence, as it were, in the world, to do what you have to do around that, but to see, oh, this is, this is emotionally very, very uh, upsetting. Or, and to see, but well, how does it feel like as a changing condition? Right away, when you do that, you step into a perspective of liberation. You know now something is changing. To sustain that is hard, because your thinking mind will, will grab hold of it. I have to do something. something I don't know. And that's attachment. It's rebirth. It's getting caught up. And then your mind notices, oh, this is, what does it feel like as a changing condition? You notice it as a bodily condition. You notice the bodily feelings changing. You notice the energy body, this is changing. And all the time, what are you doing? You're taking refuge in transcendence. Buddha knowing Dharma, as we say. And once one trusts that and cultivates that, does that a lot, that opens. You begin to see that it's always available, it's always there, it's always a possibility. It's not dependent on. The, the type of condition or experience you're having. It's, it's, it's a freedom. That's why it's truly free or a refuge, we say. The desire mind, however, and that's why we're a bit down on desire. We're not totally down on desire. <laughs> Do enjoy yourself. But what we say about the desire mind, it's limited. It's not wrong, because it's natural. You know, you'll, you'll have lunch and you'll eat something you like, hopefully. You know, you're not going to eat dirt. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with eating a nice sandwich or whatever. It's just saying that the desire mind, it's a necessary part of our lives, and it can bring us a certain amount of aesthetic beauty or whatever, but it's focused on the conditions. And the desire mind is always contingent on those conditions being just right. And when those conditions aren't just quite right, then the desire mind looks for something else because it's not just right. And so the desire mind is actually quite restless when you believe in it. When you don't believe in it, then you, when you're grateful when, when, when the ducks all line up the way you want them to. It's, oh, great. I'm happy. Oh, great, like the weather today. Fabulous, isn't it? Right? And that, that, that fulfills my desire mind. If it started sleeting tomorrow, right? you say, oh, Toronto, the weather. The desire mind would not be happy, would not be satisfied. But if I could see, oh, this is the liking of weather and this is a disliking of weather, and that awareness is not, is either, you have transcendence. You know the way things are. And that's the perspective of change. That's the perspective of change. It's always available. It's always there. So our task is not to become enlightened, it's to be enlightened. Moment by moment. You know? Because you can't, you can't become aware. I mean, I'm going to be aware tomorrow. It doesn't compute, does it? I'm gonna be aware tomorrow. What are you gonna to do today? <laughs> but but awareness, you can, yeah, oh yeah, I feel really crappy today. And you know that. And all of a sudden you see feeling crappy is actually an object of mind. And then and then you see that the subject, the sense of self that attaches to that is a thought. That's all it is. And you begin to see that very thought pattern, ego pattern, thought pattern, thinking pattern, as an object too, and that knowing is non-attachment. It's non-grasping. Doesn't mean you're always. You don't feel crappy. You still feel crappy sometimes, but it's not a problem. And it comes and goes. You don't. You don't invest a lot into it. It's just a situation. It comes and goes. Because your refuge now is not in having beautiful states of mind or ugly states of mind. It's in knowing this change, and then actually you appreciate more beauty. Actually, because you're not know, so caught up. That's just a sideshow. Yeah? Transcendence is it's hard to get a kind of correct word for this. Transcendence sounds like you're kind of floating up where whatever's under that glass, or you know, you're not participating in life. So, how do you talk about that? So, when I say to you that the feeling of the breath is in awareness, and you are that awareness, what would you call that? You don't need a name for it, but that's what I'm pointing to that possibility. It's not Buddhist, right? You don't have to believe in Buddha, you don't have to bow to the statue. Right? When I bow to the statue, uh, I, I remember awareness, that's, that's, what, I, that's what Buddhist uh, iconography is about, a Buddha image. It's not, they're not garden gnomes, by the way, <laughs> Buddha images, they, they have a, a deeper significance, um, so like a shrine. And, and a Buddha image and flowers, they all remind, you know, and I look at that and I say, ah, the awakened mind, this is the way it is now. And then if I see, like, maybe that the flowers are old and no one's changed the flowers and, and the water smells, there's a feeling of disappointment. And, and I want to give a lecture to the monastery. And so this is, this is the monk being self-righteous, or whatever. And then I save myself from that embarrassment of giving a lecture on flower, on flower quality. Because I can see, oh, that's just a condition. There's a rose because it's not beautiful. That's transcendence. It's peaceful. The sense of self arises and, and, and passes, doesn't it? And I think where we where we can really touch that that sense of silence and space is at the end of a thought. And I suggested this kind of lightly in this meditation that um, when 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 you're meditating and and you 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 start planning maybe a trip somewhere, you've phoned people and you're organizing a trip to BC or something like that, having thought about that and, and uh, put energy into that, that thinking process is going to come up. It has to, because you've put that energy into it. Now, As a meditator, you often, we, often, we often perceive ourselves as doing that deliberately. I'm thinking too much. And so the way I've been joking recently, if you're thinking too much and stop thinking, If you're doing it, then don't do it, but you're not doing it. The momentum of consciousness is doing it, that's all. So if you get in there and think, I have to stop thinking, and then you meditate fiercely to stop thinking, you'll think more. It's true, isn't it? It won't work. But what works works is that if you notice the end of a thought. And people say, what do you mean notice the end of a thought? Is that what it means by noticing the end of a thought? You're thinking again. But if you, if, you, if you make that suggestion to yourself, when your mind's gotten caught up with thinking, and someone coughs, you have a pain in the leg or whatever, even when the bell rings, let's say you know, 45 minutes you've just been you know, planning whatever, and then the bell rings. In that moment, thinking has stopped, because you know the bell. You can have two things at the same time. You know the bell, then right that moment, notice the end of thought, rather than think, "Oh God, what a pathetic meditator I am." That's more thought. It's more attachment, more sense of self. but yes. And, and then we have these breaks in the thinking mind, honest. <laughs> it does happen. And in that little space, it seems like nothing. It seems like I should be doing something. I should be meditating or, or whatever. But that little gap is the end of self. It's the end of thought. It's transcendence. It's the space rather than the object. And so the suggestion is that, be that notice that space, notice the end of a thought. Listen, listen to the end of a thought. Huh? And then you, in that listening consciousness, you come to a sense of transcendence because you're not trying to become anything anymore. You're not trying to get rid of thought. You're not caught by thought. You're not caught by the object. You're the knower. You know something has arisen, and now it has ceased, and you know Oh, you appreciate that. That's space. That helps you see the beginning of thought because now you, you can see that thought is an object that comes and goes according to certain patterns and moods. And then you notice it cease, you start to notice it arise, and you become less enslaved to the thinking mind. And the thinking mind is not a problem, it's natural. And then you can use it too, you can use it well rather than using you all the time. And that's a big part of our meditation, isn't it? So because most of us have a strong intellectual background, and uh, you know, our, our daily bread is probably based on analysis and thinking and, and looking at computers and all kinds of manner of things like that, the thinking mind is highly stimulated. You know, that's what it does. It's, it does process things. So that's a big part of learning how to meditate, is looking at the end of thought. And then appreciating, like just pure listening. That's a very good one, just to listen. Like if you just listen to the fan, you don't have to think about it. And you come to no thought. Now your desire mind or whatever will quickly say, that can't be it. I'm, I should be doing something. It seems like I'm cheating. But actually, that's it. That's all. You're awake, present, and the sound is changing. So if I'm listening to sound and I'm perceiving the changing nature of sound, what happens? I have to focus in the present moment and I'm still. Do that for a day. Do that for an hour. Do that for ten minutes. And you'll see that that keeps that sort of seeming nothingness takes you to plenitude. Reveals to you that there is a, this, this, this this deep silence always around us, within us. Um, it's always our possibility. Any thoughts or questions around that for anyone? Or any other questions on your meditation or field? So term. In terms of discerning, you know, I've noticed that, well, I'll have one worry come up, and then another worry will pop up, and then another, and then so I think, oh, you know, there's some kind of base tone of anxiety. Yeah, okay. So I end up using emotion words for vacant or like impatience. I know this, it's some kind of baseline impatience, and then it manifests that's it, that's the mood of the mind, yeah. So, Curtis is asking about the third foundation of mindfulness, for those of you who have a background in Pali, language and teaching. So, the four foundations of mindfulness, the third foundation is called Chaitanupasana, and it's the contemplating of the mood of the mind, Ajahn Chah would call it the mood of the mind, that's what I use. It's the tone. So, the, the narrative is in thought, but then the tone which is driving the narrative, like the tone of excitement and inspiration, is different than the tone of depression. Right? So we use psychological language to describe that, but sometimes it's just you can't really get a word on it. It's kind of ho hum, nothing kind of happening, mood of mind. So the danger there is you try to then you try to identify it, and you just get caught in analysis. Is that is that doubt or is that anxiety? Let me see, I don't know. And you're and you're you know you're just thinking all the time. So, but but it is different, you know, and it is different. And after a while, you don't really need to pop a label on it. You just become very 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 uh, cognizant of your own makeup, and you know, actually the patterns of moods aren't that varied. You know the, the narratives are many mainly one, but the actual types of moods, like the 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 the, the flavors of fear we feel, from uh, subtle anxiety to deep terror, it's the same kind of mood really. It's the same energy. Something about the future is threatening, whatever, and you get to know that in all its flavors, and and you go away from the narrative and you just know it inside out, and it dies, what happens. That mood of the mind, because it's, it's, it's based on desire, based on on, on ignorance, and, and and non-ignorance is knowing that's just a mood. And then the power of fear in all its variations begins to recede and cease in the mind because we're no longer fueling that way of perceiving the world. The narratives are the fuel of it. So I feel... Um, like, let's say, I didn't feel any anxiety, but if I feel anxiety about speaking here today, then the fuel would be me planning the talk. All right? You know, so I'd be sitting with Jim and, and uh, Jennifer and drinking coffee and, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? So then I'd start to plan the talk. Well, I'll say this and then I'll say that, and then I'll say this and then i say that. And I'd come here and I'd blank out. I've done that. <laughs> I've suffered that a lot. <laughs> but if I'm drinking tea with Jim and Jennifer, or coffee, actually, and, and I noticed that, oh, this is the feeling of anticipation. And that's where you need faith. Because if you, it feels counterintuitive. No, 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 plan, 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 plan. And I say, no, no, this is fear. Fear feels this. Fear. No, no, plan. Think. <laughs> no, it feels this, and it feels bloody awful. It's in your gut, you know, it's a not a nice feeling. And you sweat a certain way, you've got to go to the toilet. <laughs> you know, all kinds of manifestations of fear, but no. I'm I'm not taking refuge in fear anymore. I'm taking refuge in knowing fear. The desire mind doesn't want to do that. The desire mind wants to get rid of the fear, so it, it has strategies which we call ego to get out of it. It doesn't liberate you from fear. So now you're you know you're looking at this and allowing this. And then the, the the heaviness of the fear goes away, but then you still have anxiety, you know, trepidation. You just you just keep working with it. It's just a condition, just a condition, just a condition. And that, that non-attachment to it, but full consciousness of it, that's the secret. You make it fully conscious, but you don't go to the narrative, then that's the fuel, which we call upadana, that's the fuel of, of delusion, you no longer feel it, you no longer feel it, and the mind is liberated from that way of perceiving the world. And there's biological fear, bear comes, fine. You know, you do what you have to do, but it's no longer psychological fear. You're no longer driven by that. And that's the work of many years, right? But it's the same work. It's the beauty of it. Oh, this is the mood of whatever. Is, is there an intermediate step? Like, I, I know that sometimes... My, my default is to distract sometimes. You know, if, yeah. I feel if you're, you are know, start thinking I like, distract in various ways, and then recently where it's just kind of listening to the instrumental music or reading dharma or listening to dharma it's something not like my typical habit is that what do you think of So Curtis is asking so I was saying like if you just look at it directly and get over it kind of thing and, and Curtis is saying is there a middle way? Like can I just veg out in front of TV for a while or something? No, no, that's or, what are, you <laughs> usually do I'm trying to find something between something in between <laughs> all right yeah, going for a walk. Yeah, that's you know just process it walking. Like it's not a fierce thing; it's a welcoming. Thing. It's actually compassion. You know, this is this is what compassion is. Compassion is the willingness to allow these beings to be there. This is a being of fear. This being wants to be conscious. It's okay. Oh, come on, fear. You know, whereas the desire mind says, "You creep, get out of here." Leave me alone, stop abusing me, kind of thing. So the, the truly compassionate heart is is that, you know, that phrase I've been using with Long Cosumiro, it all belongs. Even this fear belongs. But the ingrained habit, for me at least, was so much to struggle and fight and, and, and get rid of it that the 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 reorientation to compassion uh, to this energy, to the acceptance of this energy, took a long time because the orientation was wrong for a long time. And that's the kind of struggle we have. So I never, I never recommend a kind of macho Arnold Schwarzenegger fight with the vomit. that never worked for me. But it's rather, apologies to Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, more it's worked for me that it's more like interest. You know, it's more like a chance actually. This type of Mood has been afflicting me for a long time, and finally, actually, I'm aware of it. Because before that, I wasn't aware of it. I just scatter and run, the best way I could. And you know, oh, wow! Now I'm actually aware of it. And I, and then you see, oh, well, this is an opportunity now. That's what you get more and more. When when defilements like this come up, you do get a sense of this is a chance for purification. This is a good thing now, right? And and so there's an engagement with that, with a sense of 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 interest and 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 uh, faith that this will work, uh, a certain amount of courage, I suppose. But they're all very positive factors. They're not this this kind of attempt to get rid of it. And if those positive factors, aren't, they're fine. You go for a walk, and and you know it comes up another day, and so on. And 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 and, and that way the path is gradual. You know, the, the, in the text, they say the path is is not off a cliff. It's more like a slow beach going into the ocean, and and these things we, we kind of work with them as they come. But if it's too strong, yeah, you just go for a walk or relax in some way. Especially if it's like socially intense, then you just got to get out of there. If you can't be mindful of something, then y- y- you know if you can get out of there is more important. Because if you if you're not mindful of something, you just exacerbate it even more. Yes, sir. Yes. What do you do when you have Melody, or uh, something going through your mind—the whole meditation of it—it opens past You know, it, you can't stop it. I can't say Oh, it, there's the end of the path. I, I would say it's—it comes from the intensity of your listening. <laughs> listening during the meditation. No, no. In general. In general. Sometimes S- it's just a trashy punk. That okay? So, <laughs> is it something that you heard recently? Or is it coming? Yes, actually, uh, radio. So I, I would suggest what happens is that even if it's trashy, <laughs> attention has been attracted to it, right? And because it is has a strong sense of attraction, it creates a strong mental impression. And then that mental impression begins to come into consciousness as you're meditating. Um, so how to how to deal with it? If you try to suppress it, that doesn't work. If you allow it just to be a background fan, it doesn't become a problem. Because it's not its not wrong, because it's been conditioned naturally, it's a part of dharma, from the intensity of listening. You can make choices then if you do see that, like let's say if you do exercise and you listen to some intense music to help you get past the boredom of exercise, or whatever you do, and, And then you find your meditation, that's really coming, then change the music. So it's the intensity of listening that might create that, and the beauty of that, (laughs) and it's attractive. So then look at, like, just, I would just say, just let it be background. Take your primary object, let the background come and go, and don't make it a problem. Not to react to it. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the reaction. Ajahn (laughs) Sameda has a lovely story where, (laughs) this is... (laughs) This was probably kind of early 60s, no, no, you're probably mid-60s. He's at, he's at Wat Bap Hong, which is the, the, the big monastery in Thailand. And, and Thailand has, uh, those monasteries are in open rice fields, so sound carries tremendously. And all the villages have, have very, very obnoxiously loud sound systems. And they have these fets at night, and you're sitting in this quiet monastery, and this stuff is blaring over. He's sitting in there, and, he, and uh, he's 80 now, so his music is beat generation. And he starts to hear the song, a white sports coat and a pink carnation. And it was so emotional, he started to, to cry. <laughs> it brought up this kind of sentimental feeling in him of <laughs> being in the 50s. Music is powerful. Music makes powerful mm-hmm. impressions. So we can use it powerfully in all kinds of ways. Yeah, but I would say just uh, don't make it a problem. Let it be. In, yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts or questions? Yes? I want to go back to what Curtis, Curtis in your response to it. So when you're having the, the Yeah. Uh, because the, the fear is somehow overwhelming. So the difference, I feel, is, is between, in, in that way, is just setting the fear aside for a period of time as opposed to pushing it down and trying to imagine it, pretend it's not there. So it's yeah, not or, or taking a, a strong distraction called alcohol right. to get past the fear. Exactly. So it's a, it is a middle way, in yeah. the sense, even when you're walking, that fear is still going to have a chance to bubble up. But now you're more relaxed, you're looking at trees and hearing birds, and it's not so intense. But at some point you say, no, no, I really want to feel it now. Yeah. I want to let it come up. But that comes naturally. You don't have yeah. to force that. So the other way would be uh, a strong distraction, and, and, and then the person would become dependent on that distraction. Right? It doesn't have to be alcohol, it can just be... Something very distracting, and then you, you set up a very difficult cycle. The more intense, the, the 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 fear becomes bigger because you need to get away from it, and that needing to get away from it makes it even more threatening, right? And then you see, well this is not this isn't working. The extreme, of course, would be alcohol and drugs, just to kind of get away from it, or or belligerence, or you know, all kinds of things we can do to get away from the fear. So you see, people who are you know they're fear bound but they're they're not aware of it and you know like a, like an adolescent sometimes is quite afraid and acting out like a, a young a young you know 13 year old boy is acting out grave and and you see how afraid they are and that's that's the attempt to get away from it you know? and and quite often personalities are built upon those things and then and then if we can't access the fear we're stuck we're kind of doomed into being personalities But if we are accessing fear, I think it's very healthy. I mean, and some people, of course, have like very like panic attacks and things like that, which are very very extreme. And those are extreme things you have to work with, and they might come from childhood or whatever. And those are those extreme things. But I think for me, it seems you can work with that in the same way. But your average garden variety person has a lot of fear. That's a lot of fear. And when it becomes conscious, I think it's actually very valuable if one has the safety and the situation and the wisdom, all those tools, to actually let it be just the way it is. Just the way it is. Because then, then the personality isn't, when, when you work through those things, personality is no longer driven by fear. Well, personality can manifest from appropriateness, from compassion, from presence, you know, for things which are like natural. Joel? So four foundations of mindfulness is a teaching that is very central to, to, to Buddhist meditation. First foundation of, the, uh, of mindfulness is body, body awareness. Second foundation is the, the feeling or the affect of pleasant and unpleasant, which we call Vedana. So all experience has an attractive or unattractive or a push and pull according to degree. So sometimes an experience is very, very attractive. Sometimes it's mildly attractive. Sometimes it's neutral. Sometimes it's slightly repellent. Sometimes it's very repellent. So sights and sounds and tastes and mindsets, they have this sense we call Vedana. It's translated in English as feeling, but the English word feeling is much broader. And Curtis tells me that the word that we use nowadays is affect, right? Yeah, affect. So how it affects you. That's the second foundation of mindfulness. Third foundation is the, the type of mind, Jyotana, And the fourth foundation is Dhamma. And the Dhamma is the teaching, teaching the way things are. And the teaching is a, is a kind of lens or perspective of how to now look at our experience of being human. Still, the experience of human being human is what we're learning from. But the Buddha says, well, why don't you look at it this way? Have you, ever, have you ever noticed that? So you have the four foundations uh, of the, the Four Noble Truths, right? So in the Four Noble Truths, you have the teaching that there is suffering. And we do suffer, right? Uh, so whenever you're suffering, the perspective can be the Buddhist teachings. And the genius of the Buddha, he takes that thing, which all of us don't want, and he takes it to enlightenment. It's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant, right? So when you're feeling any sense of lack, any sense of discontent, minor or major, the Buddha's saying, okay, what's the cause? And you'll say, it's the neighbor, (laughs) because they're too loud, or uh, it's my knee because it hurts, or uh, whatever. And the Buddha's saying, no, 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 that's just feelings, thoughts, body, that's nature. Knees have pain, right? So what's the cause? What's the cause? And then, so you're taking that, that teaching now and you're pondering yourself. You know the answer already. You've read it. But funny enough, when it comes up, you don't know the answer. You know the joke when the Buddha tells you, but when you get your own comical thing going on, you don't know the answer. So fear arises, say, like for me. Fear would arise. I didn't know what the cause of suffering was. I thought it was the fear. The cause of suffering is not wanting the fear. Huh? I thought it was the unpleasantness of the fear. No, 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 that's not the problem. It's the not wanting, because fear is natural. And, it, and, and so, it took me a long time to see that in the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is attachment to craving. Hmm? Attachment to craving. So I look at oh, attachment to craving. Yeah, I don't want this fear. That's the problem. Get out of here, fear. So I'll get rid of it. That's what I'll do. I'll get rid of it. It doesn't work. keeps coming back. And then one one day I notice there's fear, and there's this extra bit which I'm adding is I don't want the fear. Ah. That's the awesome moment. That's the problem. Ah. And that comes from talking to my teacher, looking at and this is the fourth foundation of mindfulness is teaching. Then I read and it says fourth noble, third noble truth is the cessation. The cessation of fear. That's it. Okay, if I get rid of the fear. No, 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 no. It's cessation of craving. Cessation of craving. So what's the difference between fear and not wanting the fear? What's the difference? And I watch, and I struggle, and I see, oh, fear feels this way, and I, know I don't have a craving to get rid of it. Ah, there's the space. There's the space around the fear. Oh, I see. And that's insight. And then I begin to both notice the cessation of craving and, in time, the cessation of fear. And that's what we call the path. The path of awareness, the path of presence. And within that, within the path, we also talk about the lifestyle that we lead, which makes that possible. Moral lifestyle, generous lifestyle, responsible lifestyle, and meditation, and so on and so forth. So you enliven your experience through a perspective, through a lens of things which are already happening. But the Buddha says, if you look at it this way, you might see what I saw. I saw, but you got to look. Joel? <coughs> Yeah. Yes, yeah. The the, the first three are, are how it's made up. So you know you can describe your human experience in all manner of ways. But the Buddha says, Well, well let's just simplify it. You know, see body's important, feelings are important, and moods are important. So let's just generalize everything and look at it that way. And then though that's existence, that's a given, why is it problematic? Why is it problematic? Because, and he gives you the four noble truths. So it's a way of, it's a kind of phenomenological way of looking at experience, rather than the, a self-narrative way of looking at experience. The self-narrative way of looking at experience is how I live in the world. I have a, I have a, I have to get back to the monastery, and I have rules and so on. That's where my sense of self is defined, being a self in social relationships. And then phenomenologically, I look at suffering and the end of suffering. So it's brilliant teaching, but the brilliance of it comes from our own intelligence to, to actually use it and, 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 and look at life in, in this perspective. Again, if you believe in the Four Noble Truths, great, great. Um, so what? <laughs> it won't liberate you. I've, I've met I've met Sri Lankan people who have done Gotten A's in high school on the Four Noble Truths, you know, because Buddhism is, is a practice, and and, I, and the Burmese people too. And I talk to them, and they've never thought of actually applying it. You know, yeah, I got an A in Buddhism. <laughs> and they're so grateful. Obviously, they're so grateful that oh, I see, sure, sure, of course. It's so it seems so obvious. Janice, oh, oh um, yes, please. A little louder, please. Back to the panicky weird conversation. Um i i if you offer some help, I took some medications because I miss So it's like biochemical, it feels like, yeah, yeah. I think this would work, Um, so the question is now, after having taken this horrible drug (laughs) and now there's a momentum of fear, for some reason, I don't know the neurology of it, um, I would think it would work, I can't guarantee it, but what I would suggest is that when, when you wake up in the middle of the night, then you can't sleep, that's the first problem. And you, you can compound the fear by thinking, oh, I'm not getting any sleep, right? So the mind starts to think about tomorrow morning. I would suggest that you do lying meditation, lying down meditation, not lying, I- L-I-E, <laughs> <laughs> one I haven't developed. Um, so when you, when you notice you can't fall asleep and you have that kind of panicky feeling, if you, if you have enough presence of mind it feels appropriate, Um, either get up and just walk back and forth. Just do walking meditation. Pick the longest bit of your space and and just walk back and forth and and let let it come up and keep coming back to your body. Kind of moving away from the narrative, back to your body. Your feet touching the ground, the feeling of warmth or coolness, and just walk back and forth, like walking a baby to sleep. Not with the intention of getting to sleep. Forget about sleep. Let it be what it is. Easy for me to say. <laughs> but if you also want to, you could, you could try lying meditation. And, and there, I would suggest, do you do yoga at all? Or, or just do the shavasana, where you lay down on your back and, and put your arms out to your sides. If your knees get tight, put a bolster under your knees. And get comfortable, get your neck comfortable. Take a posture. Don't move. <clears throat> be still. Make a determination to be still. And now this fear is coming up. Try to bring your attention down into your heart, into this area, and try to center your, your awareness now around the heart area. And generally a whole feeling of the body. Your 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 thoughts will go to narrative, try to come back to your belly and to your heart. We feel a lot of fear, you know, it really vibrates those areas and tenses them up, something fierce. So start to try to reprogram your attention from the narratives of fear and something, you know, what am I going to do, away from thought, not, not to dismiss the fear, but to know it now as a bodily experience. Now you have to reprogram, you have to keep doing that. So your mind will go, oh, it's never going to end, and I'm never going to get out of here, what am I going to do? Thinking, yeah, but where is that in the body? keep making that suggestion where is that in the body where is that in the body so after a while you, you you get the skill of knowing fear as a bodily thing you're not repressing it you know it as a bodily energy you know it in your energy body and then in the lying meditation see if you can just let that become conscious through the body if it's too much get out of there and 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 when your body wants to move try not to move let it shake or whatever but try not not to fidget just be very still with still awareness on the body, try to do that. Even if you did it for five minutes. But the basic thing is to try to shift your habitual uh, connected consciousness, uh, the way it's operating, from narrative to body. That's the, that's the trick. It takes time, and now say, I'm trying, I want to know the fear now in the body. You're not trying to get rid of it, you want to know the fear in the body. then That means you're not repressing it, but also you're not feeding it through thought. Huh? Anytime it comes up, you're in a subway, you're at a dentist's office, you're with people, oh, there it is, where is it in the body? And after a while, you get really, really good at feeling the tension in the guts and the tightness of the heart. That's unknowing. And on the positive side, any, any aspects of compassion you can do any ways of compassion that you can do. In, in, like gratitude, saying gratitude in your mind to someone, uh, serving, whatever. Any way you can bring compassion, because com- compassion is the thing that can accept fear. Anything like that, yeah. Because what we're doing is, the, the mind is a kind of momentum of, of, of habits and conditions. So the more we put in things like compassion and stillness and awareness, the more that has power. And the more we are aware of those kind of negative things as objects, they have less power. So you are literally empowering love and disempowering fear. But very practically, not just as an ideal. It's, it's very pragmatic in that way. Um, sometimes yes, uh, but sometimes you're just bearing with the fear. I mean, it's just like grit your teeth and here it comes. And, you're, and, the, and the stomach, but actually your attitude is actually compassionate. You're not maybe quite aware of it, but because you're accepting something, that acceptance is allowing, and that allowing is an aspect of compassion. It's, it's you know, like, see, I'm going to figure this out this lifetime. Give it that kind of perspective rather than, oh no, there it goes again. So it's like you're, 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 you're training, in, you're like you're an Olympic athlete. I'm gonna train with this and I'm gonna really figure it out. It has to have that kind of determination because you'll feel like you're failing. I'm not getting anywhere, this isn't working. No, no, that's just thought back to the body. Perseverance, okay? I think it's it's time for uh, closing.